So as we continue our study of Luke, we're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Um, I'll put it up on the screen for us, but if you do want to follow along, you can grab a Bible maybe from the back. We have Bibles back there, or if you can um, control your impulses, you can pull it up on your phone as well. Luke writes for us, when Jesus had finished all, uh, saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders to the, of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves you to have, to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, For those of you who maybe don't know me or joining us online, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Cross of Life and uh, thankful to see all of you here. Thankful also that you gave me and my family the chance to be off last week and that you welcomed Vicar uh, Kiera so well. Um, He said he had a a wonderful experience here and and I I knew he would. I know you. Um, So thank you, though, for letting us do that. I wasn't on vacation the whole time. Uh, I actually spent the better part of this week uh, at our Lutheran Leadership Conference and Center Center City Missionaries Conference. Um, So this is like the premier event for all the really smart people who say really smart things in our church body. And, um, and I'm thankful that, that you allow me to go to that so that I can learn as much as I can to help benefit our ministry here. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later in the sermon. Um, but I also did want to spend some time before we started uh, talking about the Vicar program because uh, we had Vicar Ben come over here this last week. And, and uh, it's easy for me to think, oh, all of you know what a Vicar is and what a Vicar does. Uh, because Cross of Life used to have Vicars for nearly 10 years. Um, but there are some of you who have never had a vicar um, because you've come into Cross of Life over the last couple of years. So I figured I'd take a moment just to explain that. Uh, the vicar program is part of our international church body's uh, pastor training program. It's essentially an intern year for our pastors. They, uh, they go through eight years of education. That's the seventh year. They spend out in a congregation, living in congregational life, preaching, teaching, doing all the work that a pastor does so they can put into practice many of the things they're, they're learning in the classroom. Um, so Vicar Ben is from Hope in Scarborough, um, and God willing, uh, we will also hopefully have a vicar in the next couple of years. Um, so I, I encourage you to pray for that. Um, I know many of you have found the vicar program to be really beneficial for Cross of Life. So I encourage you to, to pray for that, that God would bless us also um, with a vicar among us to, to uh, serve with us in our ministry here. So with that said, let's, let's dive into the text. What I want to do today is just walk through the text, make sure we know what's going on in the text, and then uh, take a couple of applications from this. We're, we're going to specifically focus on the connection between uh, what faith is, as Jesus describes it at the end of chapter 6, and uh, how the centurion lives that out in chapter 7. So two weeks ago, we studied the end of Luke chapter 6, in which Jesus is finishing his sermon on the plain, and he says that uh, in the same way that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit, so also a good man brings good out of his heart and an evil man brings evil out of his heart because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
And then he asks us this really probing and and convicting question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not produce the words that I say? And we wrestled with that. Why, Why don't we? And what we found out is that the sinful nature in us is always fighting against God's word. It wants to hear the words of the world, to repeat the slogans and phrases and ideologies of the world, rather than to hear Jesus' word and to repeat that word so that it becomes not just something that we know intellectually, but something that we live by that defines who we are and how we exist together. Now Jesus is going to show us, through this centurion, exactly what that looks like. What does it look like when a person hears God's word and begins to produce it? So what's happening in the text? Well, we meet the centurion at the beginning of the text, and it says that he heard of Jesus, so he sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. Um, This is really interesting on a couple different levels. First of all, just that that this centurion obviously thought that there was some sort of disconnect, uh, uh, excuse me, ethnically between him and Jesus, that because he was a Gentile, he was part of Rome, that, that he couldn't come to Jesus and, and expect to get the same kind of audience. And so he sends the Jews, who he knows, who we find out later he knows because he loves the nation and has built their synagogue, he, he sends those Jews to Jesus. What's maybe even more interesting, though, is that they do it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Excuse me, the, the Jews hated Rome, right? The, Rome was the oppressor. Rome, Rome was the one in power over them who was essentially enslaving them. And this guy was like the embodiment of that. He, he's part of the Roman military, right? If anybody represents Rome and its, its vice grip on the Jewish nation, it's this guy. And yet the text tells us that they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him earnestly that this man deserved to have you do this. Well, because he loves our nation and our synagogue, right? And we don't know exactly how that all happened, Um, Did he just bring his soldiers along, his hundred soldiers that are under him to help build the synagogue with manpower? Did he somehow personally fund the construction of the synagogue? We don't really know. But what most of the commentators will agree on is that this guy had had come into the Jewish nation at least by faith. Of course, he wasn't a Jew by birth, but it seems that he believed in the God of the Jews. Um, So he believed in the same God that you and I believe in. Of course, you, you know what happens. Jesus says, okay, well, I, I'm going to go with you then. If this man deserves to have you do this, I suppose I'll, I'll at least check it out. But what happens next is when he's not far from the house, the centurion has his men come to him and say, I'm not worthy to have you come in my house. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof because, because you are so far above me that I couldn't even bear your presence with me. He pleads his, his humility, his, his unworthiness before Jesus, right? And then he makes a request. He says, instead, just say the word. Just say the word and, and, and my servant will be healed. I know it will be. You don't have to come here. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to do anything spectacular, Jesus. Just say that he will be healed and he will be. And then he gives a rationale for why that's what he thinks Jesus should do. He says, For I myself am a man under authority, and soldiers under me go when I tell them to go, and they come when I tell them to come, and I have servants who listen to me when I tell them to do these things. And Jesus says that 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 explanation is faith greater than he has seen even in Israel. So, So let's break this down a little bit. What's happening with this man? Why is Jesus so impressed by this man's faith? Why does Luke choose to record this as the first example of amazing faith in his gospel? I mean, it's a a gospel written by a Jewish man, and and the first person who shows amazing faith in Jesus is a Gentile. Well, I think we can take everything that happens in this narrative, and we can put it into one sentence, and I want to break that that sentence apart for you. 
So here's what I want you to take home. Faith is personal, humble trust in the authority of Jesus' words alone. Faith is personal, humble trust in the authority of Jesus' words alone. Now, we're going to break this down, but that's, that's the main idea that we're going to wrestle with for maybe the next 20 minutes, okay? So first, let's look at this word humble. Um, the man, of course, pleads his unworthiness, right? He says, I'm not worthy to, to have you come into my house. Um, that's even why I didn't come to you in the first place. I just didn't think I was worthy of you. I think this is a struggle for, for North Americans because in general, we sort of feel like we deserve just about everything that we get in our life. We deserve the best of the best, the, the best opportunities. Even if we don't have necessarily the resources, we kind of feel like we should. Like, like everything should be fair. Everyone should have the same opportunities. And, and we can argue about the validity of that, but that's just our operating system, right? That's just how we think. And so I think it's hard for us to have the same attitude as, as this man to come to Jesus and say, I'm not even worthy of this. Not even worthy of this. This is a life of repentance for the Christian. A life of realizing that when I come into this space, when I open God's word, when I think about God, when I approach God in prayer, that I don't do it from a position of of worthiness, but a position of unworthiness. That my sin has separated me from God, that my sin makes me unworthy of God. That kind of humility is necessary for faith. Unfortunately, in much of North American Christianity, that's not present because we sort of have absorbed Christian culture, maybe because we grew up in it, or most of our friends maybe were Christian as we were growing up. We kind of just thought that's sort of what everybody is, you know? But what we see from this centurion is that, that humility, that, that understanding of my unworthiness is necessary in order to come to Jesus with true faith. The evil that lurks in every one of us is so destructive. And I think very often we're unwilling to admit it. We might look back on our life and see something evil that we did in the past, but we, we sort of want to separate ourselves from that. Like, that's been a couple of years or a couple of decades since I did that. Or maybe we just don't realize how, how offensive our sinfulness can be on other people. Maybe because we have a gracious spouse or gracious friends. Maybe because in our culture, it's hard for us to confront one another with our sin. And so people just kind of let it go and say, oh, that's just how he is. That's just how she talks. We never confront one another with our sin, and so I think we we don't find out how evil our corrupt, sinful nature actually is. But we ought to have that attitude that this is my grievous fault that I I, I have before God. That God should not want to love me. In fact, he should want to punish me and destroy me. Maybe to, to illustrate this for you, like, think about putting yourself in that centurion's shoes. Like, if you had gone to, to God in prayer for something, because that's essentially what the centurion is doing, right? He's going to Jesus, and he's saying, hey, can you help me with this? And you immediately got a text message from an unknown number that said, your prayer has been heard. Jesus himself is personally on his way to your front door. How would you feel about that? The, that man's reaction was to say, no, don't even come close to me, because I know how holy you are and I know how sinful I am. Maybe if it were me, I would have gotten excited. Yeah, Jesus is coming over to my house. Would have texted a couple people, you know. This man, no, he had had the humility to say, if Jesus is there, there is no reason for me to be in his presence. He was humble. That kind of repentance is the foundation of the Christian life. Like, we don't come in here because we're good people trying to get better. We come in here because we recognize how evil we are and that we need a Savior. And that the only way to get to that Savior is through repenting, confessing that sin, and ultimately trusting, of course, that Jesus is going to forgive that. 
which is the next part of the sentence. That it's trust in the authority of Jesus' words alone. Um, I just have a show of hands. How many of you have military experience or have been close to somebody who has military experience? Okay, maybe about a third of you or so. Yeah, for many of us, we, we maybe haven't gotten as close to the military as, as we might uh, be blessed to be. The military is an amazing thing. Just the, the order and, and the trust and the camaraderie, the brotherhood or sisterhood of, of people who serve in the armed forces is really an amazing thing. There's a good reason that we, we honor our, our troops, those people who put their lives on the line for us daily, not just because they might die, but because every single day they make sacrifices for us, right? They, they choose to give up some of their rights as, as people of this country in order to follow the orders of somebody over them that they just have to carte blanche listen to at all times. They say go and they go. They, they say come and they come. They say dig a ditch and they dig a ditch. Like whatever it is, they got to do it. They don't have the same autonomy over their schedule or, or what they eat or their body or, or any of these things like you or I have. They trust in authority. They trust that when the one who is above them says something, it is as good as done. It is not up for debate. It is not up for negotiation. It is not up for my interpretation of things. When the person in authority over me speaks, I do what the commanding officer says. Centurion gets this. He's a military man. He understands that when he says go, people go, and when, people, when he says come, people come. And he says the same thing is true about Jesus. When Jesus speaks, it happens. But let's tease this out a little bit, kind of like we did with the kids in the children's message. What are the things that Jesus says? First of all, he commands us that we ought to live perfect lives, that everything about our behavior and our, our thoughts and our, our words would be completely perfect, completely in line with God's law. That you would love God with everything that you are, every bit of your being, every bit of your possessions and resources, every moment of your life, you would be focused on God, and that you would be completely generous and compassionate with everyone around you. If anyone crossed your path, you would treat them like you would treat your own body absolutely perfectly every single time. That is how God would have us live. That is the law of God, and it must be obeyed, but you and I know that it's not. See, we don't love our neighbors perfectly. We might love them for a time, might love them for a moment, might love them with like 30% of the love that, that God calls us to have for them. But you and I know we don't love those who come across our paths perfectly. And maybe it's even worse with God. I mean, it, it's something of, of having the flesh and blood human being before us that sort of brings up our emotions. And maybe if a person is need, in need, we might, we might reach out to them. But with God, who we don't see, it can be easy to forget about him to prioritize him in our, our life, in, in everything that we do and think and spend and, and, and entertain ourselves with, like to think about God all the time. It, it's maybe even worse than our ability to love our neighbor. Now, my, I've never been in the military, but my sense is that, uh, that if you don't listen to the orders of your commanding officer, it's pretty bad. But God says that the disobedience of his word is even worse. That it's ultimate separation from God. That it's hell. Those who disobey God's word will not be saved. And that's true. And I think it's so easy for us to like really quickly run to the next part of the message, which is the gospel part. But sometimes we've got to let that hang in the air for a moment because it's true. And it's what brings us to that humble state that this man had. That he realizes, I'm not just kind of bad. I'm all the way bad. I don't just deserve Jesus a little bit more than the, the next person. We all don't deserve Jesus. 
And that's true. And we have to hold on to it as true. And hold on to the next word. That Jesus also says that he is the resurrection and the life, that those who believe in him will live even though they die. That he did not come into the world to condemn the world because the world stand condemned already. But he has come into the world to save the world because God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to us that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And that's true. No matter how dark your past, whether it's repeated or one thing that you did way back then that you can't seem to forget, Christ has washed it away. The gospel is you are free from your sin. You are free from obligation. And everything that the world or your culture or your family or your own psyche is telling you you need to do to be enough has been already given to you in Jesus. That's true. And you need to believe it. The authority of Jesus' words absolutely stands. He is the commanding officer who says, go and come and... I forgive you. I think our struggle, though, is not that we would say, well, I don't trust any of Jesus' words. I think, at least for me, if I can use myself as an example, I just tend to trust one of those words more than the other one at certain times in my life. Like when I'm doing pretty well, when I've got my life pretty cleaned and organized and, and I haven't really done anything particularly dumb lately, I'm really in love with the law part of Jesus' word where I can show everybody else, yeah, you ought to be living this way because look at me, I'm pulling it off. I'm better than you, at least. Maybe you should clean up your life too. It's so easy for me to fall into that when I'm in that, that place, but then equally when I'm on the opposite side, when I realize how evil and corrupt I am, I'm so quick to run to the gospel. I'm forgiven, I'm fine, right? I'm okay. Rather than say, no, like that's really bad. And that needs to stop. And I need to change some, some, some things seriously about my life. Because that's not just like, oh, let's just brush that under the rug, put that in the closet. Like, no, that's, that's, like, that's the stuff that got me on the track to hell. We have both of these words, God's law and God's gospel, and they both have to be true, and we have to hold them in tension. That we would have the generosity to say all sin is forgiven, but all sin is not okay. That among us, because of Jesus, there is no sin on our record, but also among us, there ought to be no sin in our lives because of who Jesus has made us. So how do you get there? How do you find that trust in God's word? Well, first of all, you do exactly what the centurion did. He heard, right? The, the text starts by saying that this man heard of Jesus and then he went to Jesus with the message. Have you heard of Jesus? The man who, though he was far more holy than we could ever be, decided to become a single cell in his mother's womb, to be the one who spoke all things to existence but could not have words for himself, who provides daily bread for every single person and yet had to suckle at his mother's breast. The God who became man for us so that we could be saved. And he gave his life humbly even though he was rejected by those who should have accepted him for you. Have you heard about Jesus? He's worth trusting, not just because he's your only hope out of this sinful world, but also he is restoring who you are, restoring you to the person you were meant to be in the gospel. So that when you look at the law, you don't only see it as condemnation for the ways that you haven't lived up, but you also see it as this big, bright, beautiful vision for how you can live in love to your neighbor. We trust in Jesus' words, both his law and his gospel. Which, of course, brings us to his words. Jesus' words alone. One of the things I think is really interesting about this text is that the man never actually personally interacts with Jesus. Right? He sends the Jews at first, and then when the Jews get Jesus to start coming towards his house, he sends his friends to say, don't trouble yourself. You just say the word and that'll be enough. 
I just think that's interesting because at least at the second part, I understand the first part, maybe there's some ethnic cultural things going on. The second part, Jesus is already coming to his house. Couldn't he just come out by himself and just say, hey, it's okay, just say the word. No, he sends his friends. He doesn't ever interact with Jesus personally. It's because he trusts Jesus' word. He trusts that he doesn't need to see anything else from Jesus. He knows that Jesus' word is so effective, so powerful, that all that needs to happen is Jesus to speak and all things will be made right. It's interesting to hypothesize what would happen if Jesus had gone to that man's house. I mean, if any of the other miracles of Jesus are any indication he's going to put his hand on somebody or he's going to spit on the ground and make mud or whatever it is, something he's going to do to, to do some miraculous sign and everyone will be there and everyone will see it and it'll be amazing. I think that's what I would have wanted, right? Can you come and show your power at least as a testimony to the people around me? This man says, no, all I need is your word. All I need is your word. That's faith, brothers and sisters. It is not to wait for Jesus to give us some sort of extra sign, something extra that we need to prove that he is truly the son of God, that he truly can save, your sins, save you from your sins, that, he, that he's truly in your life. No, he, he's already said it. You have his word. Trust his word. Be here to hear his word. Open your Bible to see his word. And then you'll be willing to be satisfied with just his word. I'm as sinful as everyone else. I I desire that Jesus would give me signs, make it really easy for me to see what he's up to. He doesn't do that. He gives you his word. And that's faith. In the same way that that man had never met Jesus in person, so also we have not met Jesus in person, and yet we have exactly the same thing he had, his word. And so our desire ought to be the same, that Jesus would speak. Just say the word, Jesus. Jesus. Like coming to a commanding officer and saying, I know that you're over me and I know you have good ideas of what I'm supposed to do and think and be and, and tell me what those are. Ought we to do that? Yeah. To find Jesus' answer to every question in our life. Which, by the way, he has. I think sometimes we think that the Bible is like this compartmentalized piece of our life where it has some things to say about some things, but there's so much of my life that it has nothing to say about. That's a lie. That's what Satan wants you to believe. God's word speaks to every aspect of your life. Everything you think, do, entertain yourself with, spend, have the relationships that you have, like everything you do, Jesus has something to say about it. And if you don't know what that is, that's why you're here. That's why you have a pastor. That's why you have Christian brothers and sisters to, to ask those questions, to have those discussions, to find out what does Jesus' word say. Then finally, this faith is personal. I suppose this centurion could have just kind of kept it impersonal with Jesus. He could have said, oh, I heard that Jesus did those things. I've heard that he's God. I suppose I'll just pray to God and maybe it'll get all fixed. That's fine. Or maybe he could have just not interacted with Jesus at all. He could have said, well, that's, that's great that Jesus is like that, but he'll never come to me. I mean, I'm a centurion. I'm a Roman. He's a Jew. Obviously, there was something going on there. And yet this man believed that what Jesus had was for him. It wasn't just general. It wasn't just out there. It was for him. Some of the theologians of the Reformation said that the essence of the gospel is for you. That phrase, for you. But that is what distinguishes Christianity from all other worldviews. All other worldviews say that it could be for you if you do the right things, say the right prayers, light the right candles, do the right actions. 
Christianity uniquely says, this is Jesus for you. Completely done on on your behalf. And you can tap into that. You can tap into knowing that, that everything that you need in Christ, you already have. That every bit of of self-loathing that you have, Jesus doesn't see because he sees you as a a perfectly perfected child of God. That's for you. And when I say up here, I forgive you all your sins, and when I had you a little bit of bread and wine and say this is for you, for the forgiveness of sins, you're experiencing that. You're tapping into that. But wouldn't you do it throughout the week? To know that the God of angel armies is on your side. The God who would not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How would he not also with him give us all things? It's for you. Not because you're so great or I'm so great. Because Jesus is so gracious. And he has spoken and it is true and you ought to believe it. This is faith, brothers and sisters. Personal, humble trust in the authority of Jesus' words alone. That I would go to no other place but to the words of Jesus to define who I am and define where I'm going. Then one last thing I want to pull out of this text, that this kind of faith leads us to love our neighbor. You realize what this centurion was doing with his faith? Asking for Jesus to help somebody else. <laughs> like the centurion doesn't come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I've got some problems. Will you come and help me? No, he says, my servant has some problems. Can you help him? And the deep love that this centurion has for the servant is obvious, not in the English so much, but in the Greek. In the Greek, the the text uh, entirely uses the the Greek word doulos, slave, for this man that is under the authority of the centurion until the one place where the centurion is speaking about his servant and he says, just speak, speak the word and my servant will be healed. There the Greek shifts to a different word. It doesn't use doulos anymore, it uses pais. And pais is the Greek word for child. This is not just a man who is under my authority. This is not just a person who I get to order around. This person is like a family member to me. And that kind of faith that Jesus gives us leads us to see each other that way. You're not just the person who comes to my church, the person who lives in my community, the person who I play hockey with, the person that I go for coffee with. You're my family. And would that we would treat each other that same way that it wouldn't be surface-level conversations for us, that we would care so deeply about one another, that, that we would regard each other as family. These people are like my brothers and sisters, my fathers and mothers, my, my sons and daughters. You know, I said I, I went to that leadership conference um, this week, and the leadership conference, I think, is a fantastic thing for our church body. Um, we actually invited that any of you who wanted a completely all-expenses-paid trip to Chicago to go to this Lutheran leadership conference could do that. None of, us, none of you took me up on it this year, but um, when it comes back, do that, because I think it is very valuable for our church. But while I was there, I had a thought. Five big keynote addresses, 45 breakout groups, covering everything from how to build a, a great worship facility and how to do really good small groups and how to help people with depression and how to change your church culture and how to do a preschool ministry really well and, and how to do a women's ministry really well. And, and the list goes on. And I just thought to myself, this kind of just feels like a big house. Have you run into this? Um, both Johanna and my parents have really big houses, at least by Toronto standards, like four-bedroom detached kind of deals. And uh, because they live there by themselves with none of their kids anymore, they have a lot of stuff. 
Maybe you've experienced that in your own house. You get a big house and you fill it with a whole bunch of stuff, right? Because you can't bear to have an empty storage room. Now, Johanna and I um, have a smaller house, not small by Toronto standards, modest, but definitely smaller than our parents. And because of that, we have to be thoughtful about what we keep and what we throw out and what heirlooms we accept and what furniture we accept and what toys we keep for the kids and so on and so forth. It has made us think through what is actually valuable that we actually need for our life together. What does the church actually need? I fear that because Christianity has been essentially the dominant worldview in this country for over 100 years, the Christian church has built itself a really big house and filled it with a whole bunch of stuff. And that stuff might be valuable. My parents don't just keep stuff because they like stuff. They keep stuff because they think, well, that could be useful at some point, and it probably could. But when they're living in the big house by themselves, do they really need all that stuff? Probably not. And in the same way, I think we as a church, we can get so bogged down with all the extra stuff. Do we have preschool ministry? Do we have women's ministry? Do we have something to reach people who have mental illness? Do we have something to reach homeless people? Do we, you know, and we, we can make a list of all the things that we could do. And it's not that those things are bad. They're valuable, but are they really what we need? Are they actually what we're about? Or is what we're actually about God's word spoken to us and lived out? I have a dream about this congregation. I'm thinking about this because more than likely I'll get another call in the next week or whatever. And I'm just thinking about what it means to be the pastor at Cross of Life. And, and you can tell me if you totally disagree with this, but this is my vision for the congregation. That when people would come in here, they would say, I don't know that I can find Jesus' love in any better way than I can find it there. And I don't know that I can be loved by people any better than I can be loved there. If we did that, it wouldn't matter if we had a really great or a really poor children's program or or homeless ministry or mental health ministry or any of these sorts of things because we would have the time and the care to love one another like family so deeply that a person would say, I don't even really care that they don't have that stuff because I can't be loved better than I can be loved there. And I can't hear about Jesus better than I can hear about him there. I'm thinking about this too because one of the breakouts that I went to was about church buildings and we're thinking about, you know, potential moving into our own facility pretty soon. And so it's on my mind and, and then I just had this thought, like if we could, we could speak Jesus and his love in a way better than, than a person could find anywhere else and we could love them more deeply than they can be loved anywhere else, people would meet in a brown paper bag for that. So can we deeply drink from the well of God's word to find out how deeply we are loved, that he would call us not just those whom he saved, but his brothers and sisters and friends and then love each other that way. That would build a church worth being part of. That would build a church that Jesus would be part of. Now, of course, we're going to fail at that. I'm going to fail at that. You're going to fail at that. And that's why the forgiveness of Jesus is so important to keep coming back to. We're here as broken people, humble people, with a personal trust in Jesus' words as authoritative over all things. And so let me challenge you. Be back here every week. I know it's easy to make excuses, but be back here every week because God's word is going to be preached here. And open your Bible this week. I know it's going to be hard. I know Satan and his demons are going to come after you and say, you don't have time for that. That's too hard to read. You've got better things to do. Don't listen Because when you read God's word out loud, it is an act of spiritual warfare against your own sinful nature and the demons around you in the world that we live in. 
And to the extent to which Christ's word dwells in us richly, we can advance, not like a worldly military option, uh, operation, but a, a spiritual military operation to bring people not into compliance with some law, but into the freedom of the gospel. Let's pray about that. Jesus, thank you for your word. May we open our scriptures weekly, daily, to speak those words back to ourselves and to our family and friends, that we would have that word dwell among us richly that, that changes lives. I pray that this congregation be a place where people find your love in a way they can't find it anywhere else and find the love of, other, of fellow Christians in a way they can't find it anywhere else. And anyone who walks in our door, even if they don't totally agree with what we preach, says that place is different. That place has something that nowhere else has. I pray that for the sake of your gospel, the power of salvation for all who believe. 